In just four months, the hillsides around L.A. had become infamous. Between October 1977 to February 1978, the bodies of 10 young women and girls were discovered naked and positioned in lascivious poses with ligature marks around their feet, ankles, and neck. A tidal wave of fear crashed down on the City of Angels. Media dubbed the killer the Hillside Strangler. Hysteria reached a fever pitch when the bodies of five women were found the week of Thanksgiving, and law enforcement was frustrated by the lack of evidence. A pattern quickly emerged. The Hillside Strangler washed the bodies before dumping, and based on that lack of evidence, it appeared the victims hadn't put up a struggle. Detectives worried that the killer could be a person of authority, like a police officer or someone posing as law enforcement. Another thing that kept investigators up at night, semen in the body and the placement of bruises, led investigators to believe these heinous murders were the work of two people, not just one, which meant they were looking for not just one serial killer, but two working together. And without a doubt, the autopsies pointed the finger at a cruel hand. Not only had the victims been sexually assaulted, the ligature marks told a cruel tale. The killer strangled his victims as slowly and painfully as possible for one purpose, to make him feel powerful. And then in February, just as the killings had begun, they stopped. It would take two more murders over 1,000 miles away to finally unmask the Hillside Strangler. It truly was an uh, amazing, a bizarre case and an incredibly dangerous human being. And you look at the what the victims go through and their families and the ripple effects on these cases, and it's just huge. And unfortunately, uh, there's such a focus on the defendant. i got to tell you, the focal point should be the victims. But would the victims get justice? I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. Yeah, he's right. We talk so often about the killers and it's easy to make the victims just a name or a number. Well, and especially when the, you know, serial killers, killers are so over the top. As these bodies were found, there they were posed like one was posed on the side of a hillside and it was in direct eyesight across the police department. And so they felt like, you know, it was just becoming this media frenzy of like, who are these people? What's happening? And, and the, so brazen to oh, do yeah. it right in front of the police department. Yeah. And at first it was uh, sex workers. And then all of a sudden it started getting, you know, they started branching out to schoolgirls walking home, you know, more quote unquote middle class types. And so then it just the frenzy, you know, became even more. And so... The murder stopped in California after that last killing in February 1978. They ran down thousands and thousands of tips. Even so, the case ran cold and the team was disbanded. They had like a hundred wow. in California. They had three different law enforcement agencies working together over like a hundred people. Although they were they were frustrated that you know they were happy that they just stopped and so they wondered did they go to prison did they you know die and so if you fast forward to January 1979 in Bellingham Washington two students at Western Washington University Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder went missing 
And uh, recently, I was able to talk with the retired prosecuting attorney, Dave McCachran, who has served as Whatcom County's elected prosecuting attorney since 1975. And he says that finding Karen and Diane became their top priority. And the officers are really concerned because they were conscientious people and uh, there was no real reasonable explanation they were gone. But it was too late. The bodies of Karen and Diane were found in Karen's car. And Dave was the type of prosecutor who went to the scene of every murder case. They were found in the back of a uh, Mercury Bobcat, and they both had signs of strangulation by ligature, which means a rope or a wire. And uh, they were closed. Um, their shoes were off. Now, if this is relating back to the Hillside Strangler case, were any of the other victims found paired up? Yes, they killed two schoolgirls who were 12 and 14 who were going to the mall. And I'm not sure how they found their bodies exactly if they were together, but um, it, it wasn't the first time that, okay. you know. But at the time, they weren't thinking in Bellingham, oh, this could be the Hillside Strangler. Right. They were thinking, oh, my gosh, this the deaths rocked the county. I mean, this is Whatcom County. Bellingham is a coastal town, totally different from L.A., you know, night and day. And it didn't take long for the name of Ken Bianchi to surface. Bianchi worked at a private security firm, and apparently he had asked Karen for help. She knew him from work, and uh, he was a very friendly, very engaging guy. And uh, that is how she, and she was a very pretty girl, and that's, uh, of course, why he selected her. So Karen and Bianchi worked at Fred Meyer, the grocery store, together. Even so, she wanted to bring a friend to be safe, so she's smart. And Bianchi obliged and said, okay, the women would, would house sit for two hours at a really posh residence while a new security system was being installed. And Bianchi told the students that they needed the extra security because there was $500,000 in cash inside the home. And this is 1979. And so, did anybody question why a store security guard would have half a million dollars in his house? So he had quit working at Fred Meyer. And he had worked, he worked for a private security firm. So okay. that was all legit, you know. Um, and so she knew him from the Fred Myers. And so this wasn't his house. This was one of the homes that signed up for that extra special security. And so he just used this. A couple of college kids is the extra special security. Okay. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. That yeah. sounds totally legit. Well, you know what? That's the thing about this guy. You know, he was able to con his way. He was a con man. Right. Um, so that was the con. And in the interest of keeping that installation top secret in this super posh house, Bianchi told the women not to tell anyone. What he hadn't counted on was that Karen told her boyfriend that both she and Diane would be doing security for Ken Bianchi. Now, prosecuting attorney Dave McCachran says Bianchi was the first person that they talked to after their bodies were discovered. And during that interview, Bianchi denied having anything to do with the murders. And police bought that explanation at first. Like I said, you know, it's kind of revolting to say that he was charming, but apparently he had this charm But he was also, you know, a really good con man, and so they were buying it until they checked his home and car, and they found the keys to the house that the women had supposedly been house-sitting in his truck, along with the scarf that belonged to one of the women. And when they searched his house, they found stolen goods, which they charged him for as they got their ducks in a row. So they basically were like, hey, we, we, this guy looks good for this. And I got a very high bail. 
shortly after that, we got reports back from the FBI, and they matched up fibers from the search warrant results. We had taken uh, Ken Bianchi's clothing. We found the name of Karen Mandick uh, in his home on his dresser. He said that he did not know her and that we knew that he was lying about that. The FBI matched up fibers from his shirt uh, with the home that we subsequently found the home. And uh, we looked at fibers there. We also found pubic hairs that matched his in this home on the stairwell. And so we had a number of things, and we thought we definitely had enough to charge him. So I amended the charge from the thefts to uh, two counts of murder in the first degree. So did they have any idea at this point that they were looking at somebody who might be connected with the Hillside Strangler case in Los Angeles? Well, you know what? These are pretty sharp knives in the drawer, whatever that saying is, because they looked at his driver's license and they're like, hey, this guy's from L.A. Ah. And so um, they called the task force in L.A. and was like, hey, you know, they they looked at the ligature marks and they, you know, thought you guys might be interested in this guy and they wanted to help them. And they thought that that they had captured the Hillside Strangler. Another piece of the puzzle came to light during that background check on Bianchi. And this is where we're talking about somebody who's this con artist. They found um, that he had tried to pose as a psychiatrist in California. And had advertised that he wanted to hire a uh, psychologist or psychiatrist and obtained resumes and also transcripts of people who had uh, been trained and had gone through the training and were licensed. And he then stole the transcripts of a man by the name of Thomas Stephen Walker and uh, changed his name and put Kenneth Bianchi in it and then had degrees actually made uh, wall hangings that showed he was uh, the psychologist and psychiatrist and was a sham, ran a sham counseling business. So he was an extremely devious guy, and I, when I looked at the at the case and we looked at the California case, we thought that he probably was a moving person in the abductions, rapes, and killings in California and in Washington. Wait, okay, yeah, I know. rewind. Yeah, he is yeah. acting as a psychiatrist. He's counseling people. Clearly, this guy is not stupid. No. He's got some kind of brains on him. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't he just go to school and get a degree? I think that he, um, when we talk about human nature, like not only did he want to be a psychiatrist without actually doing the work, he also w- tried to get into law enforcement any chance he got. He grew up in New York, Rochester, New York. He tried to be a police officer there, and he couldn't pass, like, the psych evaluation. Gee, I wonder why. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Then, so those do work. <laughs> yeah. So then he came up when he moved to um, – so basically, he grew up in New York, and he ended up, you know, having some hard times there, you know, wasn't really settling in. So then his mom was like, hey, go live with your cousin, Angelo Bono. And so he went up there, and when he went to L.A., you know, he basically tried to get into law enforcement there and he couldn't pass the psychological testing there either. When he had come to Bellingham, he had tried to get on the police force there and he couldn't. Uh, you know, these tests that they have obviously, you know, d- are doing something right, because I think that not only did he want to use his psychology phony baloney, but also use any kind of job that he could get into law enforcement to you know, do take advantage of people. He wanted to be in some kind of position of authority where he could tell people what to do or how they should behave. It sounds like basically manipulate them to his 
purposes. I mean, he, um, I don't want to jump ahead, but clearly we're setting the stage for somebody who is a complete sociopath, right? Did he ever kill or abuse any of his patients that we know of? Not that we know. <laughs> his patients loosely. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. No, I know. <laughs> um, no, but but he but they do believe that he probably, w- you know, this was a way to gain access to women and not only make a buck, too, at the same time. And, and maybe it was just um, he didn't have the opportunity. But mm. in that particular practice, you know, he didn't. So. Because although he was persuasive, and here we get to that point, he was persuasive, but um, Dave said there was something empty inside of him that he couldn't hide, and he experienced that himself. He's a sociopath, and uh, sociopaths are truly the most dangerous people we know in our society. They have no feelings of remorse, nor empathy, uh, nor feeling that anything that they do is wrong. Uh, I, I remember interviewing the, or having an interview uh, of a sociopath who had stolen money from a, uh, an elderly woman, and he said, she's holding my money, that money was my money. And their whole focus is themselves, it is nobody else. And if they hurt someone, if they have to hurt someone um, to gain what they wish to gain, they feel no empathy, they feel no um, uh, guilt. And it's so unusual for the rest of us who have grown up and feel guilt if you uh, if you cut somebody off in your car and you know if you get ahead of somebody in line uh, you don't do that that's it's a violent type of the social mores that we all like to follow sociopaths don't do that and uh, it's hard for the rest of us to understand that many believe that Bianchi felt the noose tightening he was cold busted for the two murders of the college students in, in Bellingham and then they were getting all this evidence you know that he looked pretty good for the hillside strangler and with his interest in movies like Faces of Eve and Sybil, remember, this is the late 70s, you know, with the woo-woo, with the psychology, and those were really popular books and movies at the time. And so all of a sudden, he hatched this insanity defense. And so he still claimed to have no memory of the killings, but he agreed to undergo hypnosis <laughs> to loosen up his memory. I mean, you can imagine how law enforcement must have felt at this point. You know? I wonder if he thought he was going to, like fool the hypnosis like pretend to be under hypnosis and give some false narrative okay well during this hypnosis mccachran says bianchi would eventually detail how he sexually assaulted and killed the women took them in took them downstairs pulled the gun up from beneath the cushion of a couch uh, got the girls to lay down and tied them up with pre-cut ropes that he brought with him in a bag And he had ace bandages he used to gag them with. And uh, he took one girl, moved her to another room, separated the girls, then had them, uh, the one girl disrobe, raped her, tied her back up. And um, at that point, uh, took the uh, condom and uh, flushed that in the toilet, took the other girl in, raped her, flushed the condom in the toilet. And then uh, he strangled both of the girls with the ligatures that he had brought with him. And he had deep furrows on their necks. We could see that they had been strangled with the ligature. I then took uh, all of the ace bandages, took the ligatures, dressed the girls, put them in their bobcat, and abandoned that in a cul-de-sac that was very close by. He walked back, picked up his security car, and uh, he thought that he had left really nothing at the crime scene. And the only things we found at the crime scene, we found uh, some pubic hair that matched his, but that's not a positive identification. 
We also found the fibers in the carpeting. And he, when he backed up the bobcat, he ran over a low retaining wall and it dented the gas tank of the car. And we matched that up. We took the top piece off of that small retaining wall and our officers actually matched the dents in the uh, gas tank with that of the uh, stone from the uh, retaining wall. So what about the idea that there were two and that he had a partner? I find it fascinating that it seems like in this case, he made so many mistakes mm-hmm. and left so many clues. Mm-hmm. He did. And that's why I actually asked McCachran, was he the dummy of the two, basically, because the second he's away from, and I don't want to give it away too much because we're getting to the, to the let, let me just go to the next okay. part. You know, so he he confessed to these, what he did to these Bellingham uh, students, these women, but he didn't confess as Bianchi as Steve. Hi. Are you Ken? Do I look like Ken? <laughs> it is the Ken, is it? No, it's not. It's Steve. Oh, okay. Is he trying to play the multiple personality yes, card? Yes, he is. That's oh, him. Stop and, it. and the videos, they actually have it You know, in the archives. They have the video of him. I mean, it looks so cheesy now, but like back then, they really took this seriously. They had appointed six psychiatrists two for the defense, two for the court, and then two for the prosecution, okay? So in these interviews, not only did he incriminate himself as Steve in the two Bellingham uh, murders, but also in the Hillside Strangler kidnapping, raping, torture, and murder of 10 women. But he also then started talking about, he implicated his cousin, Angelo Bono. Oh, his real name, Angelo, huh? Yeah, no, that's his cousin. Yeah. Right. But oh, right. But if he's Steve, then yes. Angelo's not his cousin unless Steve <laughs> is like the brother of Bianchi oh or something. Oh my gosh, you are so smart. Yes. I killed her. Angelo killed her. They mean the Wagner when Angelo killed. This broad I've never seen before. This broad I killed. These two Angelo killed. Yeah, exactly. He's so flippant. Oh, I know. And so oh, yeah. just, I mean, oh. not that you would expect anything else, but it's, I don't know, it's hard to hear that. No, you called it because fast forward 10 seconds more and he's like, as the guy's writing down all the different people that he killed and Angelo killed, and he's like, oh, okay, okay. And he's like, are, am I going too fast for you? Like, he literally said that to the to the psychiatrist acting like you know the guy was too slow i mean it was just it's that kind of flip psycho. he sees himself in an entirely different category than the rest of the human race yes but he did mess up on these two bellingham murders i mean there's no question the fact that he knew the victims they found jewelry in his home that matched the victims in california and so basically their MO as the Hillside Stranglers, plural, was that they would pose as undercover police officers with fake badges, place their victims in Bono's unmarked police car, and they would then take them back to Bono's home to sexually assault, torture, and strangle them. So why'd they stop? At some point during the killing spree in California, Bianchi, as I said, had applied for a job with the LAPD. He'd even been taken on a few ride-alongs with police officers. And during those, he pumped them for information about the Hillside Strangler. So when Bono found out that not only had Bianchi gone on these ride-alongs, but also that he had been questioned in the case, because basically one of the victims, he lived in an apartment complex called the Tamarind Apartments, and one of the victims had 
been called. She was a prostitute, and they had called her to come and meet them at the Tamarind departments for, you know, to get paid. And so people heard a scuffling and that she, and they tracked it. He actually lived in the Tamarind departments. But the, for some reason, LAPD didn't make that connection that, you know, this wow. was the guy. Yeah. I'm starting to wonder, you know, I have so much respect for police and detectives. I know that they work incredibly hard, but I got to be honest, Mm -hmm. I'm starting to wonder if the LAPD didn't maybe drop the ball on this. Well, what Dave said, and 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 he said, you know, Bellingham is so much different than L.A. And you have to imagine back at the time they had thousands and thousands and thousands of tips. In Bellingham, it was like, You know, he was clearly he rose to the top because he'd made mistakes. But I think that, you know, reading between the lines, like they did a really great job. Whatcom County, they have a record of having a really great. So if you're a serial killer, do not (laughs) not. go to Whatcom (laughs) County. They will find you. Exactly. They will catch you. Exactly. Well, what's really cool about McCachran and just to show kind of the difference like every single murder that would happen he would be on speed dial for the police because he wanted to be there because he wanted to see the scene understand it because he felt like it would not only make him a better prosecutor but make sure that they did everything right with search warrants and that he walked them through that process so it was a real team effort and and I think that obviously when that happens you know the results are much better so at the end of the day a judge found that Bianchi was sane to stand trial, which then Bianchi immediately made a plea deal. And he pled guilty for five murders in L.A. and the two murders in Bellingham. And he made that deal to escape the death penalty. And they did that because he agreed to testify against his cousin, Angela Bono. And they didn't really have a super solid case against Angelo because they'd washed the bodies Mm -hmm. and they had a little bit of like fiber left on the eye of one of the victims. And um, so they just didn't have a lot. Yeah, it was just a really loose case, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So they really needed him. And so the Washington made a sacrifice and said, hey, okay, we'll make a plea deal. And part of that deal was that Bianchi wanted to do his time in California. He didn't want to be in a Washington jail, but he had to be honest on the stand and he had to be a good witness. So Bianchi is flown to California And he's sitting in jail there waiting for his cousin's trial to start, which apparently just takes forever in uh, California and L.A. to put together. And so, Kim, I have to take a detour here because this is yet another bizarre twist in this Hillside Strangler case. In 1980, when Bianchi is sitting in jail, a woman named Veronica Compton. I mean, this is like stranger than fiction. (laughs) She's a wannabe screenwriter and an actress. She sent Bianchi her screenplay about a female serial killer. And she also wanted to make a movie about him. And so Bianchi saw Compton as a possible get out of jail free card. So he invited her to visit him in prison. And she fell in love with Bianchi. Oh, stop it. No, this gets worse. Listen to this. (sighs) He then cons her into traveling to Bellingham with some smuggled semen of his. And she wore this pregnancy costume and a wig and lured an attractive woman to a motel and attempted to strangle her, you know, to give him an alibi. So the girl went up to a uh, motel, it was called the Shangri-La in Bellingham, and Veronica uh, Compton got behind the woman, put a ligature around her neck and just about killed her. She had deep furrows on her neck and she had uh, hemorrhaging in her face, we call them petechial hemorrhages. 
when you're constricting someone's blood flow and the blood cannot go back down into the uh, body, into the system, uh, you'll get sort of bruising that uh, uh, they're just hemorrhaging going into the, uh, into the capillaries. And we could see this in her. She was able, she's a very strong girl, and was able to break away. So let so, me ask this, though. <laughs> what is the point when he has already confessed to all these crimes? Then he started walking it back. Oh. And he was saying that, I didn't, I didn't do it. She basically told her the technique of how he strangled. And so she nearly killed this woman and strangled her in the hotel room and did just like he had told her to do. Then she fought like hell and Veronica ran away. But she fully intended on killing her and planting the semen. So then they could say, Bianchi's in prison. Couldn't have somebody, been him. Couldn't have been him. Yeah. It's somebody else doing this. So that woman was ended up being extradited back to Bellingham, where she was later convicted for attempted murder. And, you know, as I said, the ruse was all an attempt to have it look like the Hillside Strangler was still on the loose and the wrong man was imprisoned. And um, she served and was released in 2003. I mean, she was in prison for a long time. I'm still wondering about his girlfriend pregnant girlfriend oh my that he moved up to Bellingham yeah, with. She, uh, could you imagine being pregnant no. with somebody's child and finding out they're a serial killer? Well, she couldn't believe. Apparently, you know, he was just like the perfect boyfriend and was just couldn't when they came and searched her home she was dumbfounded she couldn't believe he'd led this double life according to her i mean sometimes you hear these stories and you could tell the wife's like yeah he beat me he's like you know all that stuff but in this case it sounds like you know he was able to keep that mask firmly in place and she had no idea it came as a complete shock to her so the trial against angelo bono was one of the longest in american history two years and two days In the end, Bono was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder. The jury gave him life without the possibility of parole instead of the death penalty. And get this, because they didn't think it was fair that Bianchi didn't get the death penalty. So Bono, he shouldn't get it either. I was just thinking, it's amazing also that he was convicted of nine counts. Well, what happened there is the first murder, Yolanda Washington, Basically, they had this side gig of having prostitutes. They had two women, Bianchi and Bono, and were like, hey, we want to make money as pimps. So they forced these two young girls into prostitution for them. And apparently it worked for a while, but they ended up running away. The two girls got away. And that's how this whole thing started as kind of like a revenge against these prostitutes. So uh. the first one was this was uh, Yolanda, and apparently they got her in the backseat of the car, and Bianchi raped her, and then he strangled her in the backseat. So technically, I guess Bono didn't, you know, he was driving. Gotcha. So I think okay. that's I think that's what happened there. But because uh, Bianchi was a hostile witness and didn't adhere to his plea deal of being truthful while testifying. Did they try to call Steve? <laughs> yeah. Well, get this. Steve was the was the guy that they stole. He stole his um, psychology like, oh, degree. Gosh. His name was Steve. That's where that. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Bianchi was actually um, backtracked and said he was innocent, and the judge punished Bianchi by shipping him back to Washington to service time. So he's here in Walla Walla. He's with Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. You know, he's he's like with his buddies. Yeah. Exactly. He's exactly where he should be. Angelo Bono died from a heart attack on September 21st, 2002, and Ken Bianchi was denied parole in September 2005 and remains in prison. But right now, he still thinks that he's innocent and tries to convince people that he 
he's he's innocent and, you know, is basically actively always having these lawsuits in Washington because he wants to go to California. And, you know, Dave thinks that California is more lenient or has proven at points to be more lenient and that there could be a chance that he could get parole at some point if, if he ever went to California. But um, Dave doesn't think that's going to happen. But still, it's kind of a scary, a scary thought. In a way, it's almost good that he is clearly so unhappy in his circumstances. Oh, well, that's yeah, exactly that's, that's, where he deserves to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crazy story, huh? That is crazy. I think, you know, the fact that, again, there are two of them. Mm-hmm. We talked about this with the Carnation mm-hmm. killings, mm-hmm. where there was a boyfriend and girlfriend who were murderers and found each other. And here mm-hmm. we go again. We've got relatives, cousins who are mm-hmm. killers and found each other and did this together. It's starting to make me wonder if it doesn't happen more frequently than we realize. You know, that's a really good point. But what they had in common, what Dave says, is they lacked a conscience, they were psychopaths, and that the only thing that made them feel good was killing women. And it was like a drug. It was like an addiction. There was that sexual component, too. But yeah, I mean, you wonder about the ones that don't make mistakes, you know, just like with the bunker guy. You know, if he hadn't have left that gas cap off. Right. It also goes to the question of nature versus nurture. When you're talking about family members who are killers Mm -hmm. and sociopaths, Mm -hmm. how much of that is something that they were born with and how much of it is something that came to them as they developed, you know, in their early years. And I I think it's it's an interesting question. I don't I I see you have something to say, but I'm gonna ask you to wait (laughs) because that is gonna be the topic of our next episode. Okay. Nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. This killer some say was raised and taught to be a killer. So we'll find out what you think about that. Okay. Sounds good. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. 